0: How are y'all doing this morning? Doing good. All right. Uh, Richard forgot one major announcement, and it's Super Bowl Sunday. And so we got to know, who who here is pulling for Chiefs? Do we got a lot of Kansas City people? A couple couple brave souls willing to admit it. Eagles out all the way from the East Coast. A couple people want some Eagles to win tonight? No, absolutely not. All right. I'm a Cowboys fan, so thank you for not making me rebuke you publicly. That's great. Um, Yeah, it's been tough to be a Cowboys fan, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, But hey, my name is Ian. As Richard said, Uh, I'm our family ministry pastor down in Cedar Rapids. And so it's a joy to be with you guys this morning as we continue Revelation. Uh, Have you guys been enjoying going through Revelation as a church? Yeah, yeah. Even after last week, you got rebuked pretty harshly and you're here again. So that's great. Uh, But last week was a tough one. Uh, We looked at chapters two and three, these letters to the seven churches Uh, that signify letters to like the whole church. And what Jake got to unpack and what we see coming out in uh, Revelation 2 and 3 is that uh, there was a lot of compromise happening in God's church. Uh, These letters were written to seven different churches, meant for all of them. And what we see is that only of the seven, only two of them were good churches. Five of them had a lot of things to work on. They got some pretty heavy-handed rebukes about the compromises they were making. And uh, they heard some things that you don't really want to hear if you're a church. Like things like, I'm going to remove your lampstand, which is essentially Jesus saying, I'm going to remove your right to be a church. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to come at you like a thief. Like those are things that you do not want Jesus saying to you if you're a church, right? But these are the letters that were received. And even just hearing these letters preached last week, and I was confronted with my own compromise, right? Like, these churches were compromising in different areas. They were seeing the wealth that they had as most important. They were seeing culture influence their life more than the gospel, and I started to look at my own life and start to see compromises that I was making, and it got to the point where I was just starting thinking, like, how are we supposed to conquer, because like that's the call at the end of these letters, to those who conquer, to those who conquer. And it's like, man, how are we supposed to conquer? How are we supposed to be a church and a people that don't compromise our faith, that don't compromise uh, our beliefs, that remain faithful? How are we supposed to do that? Because remember, like this is a letter that is being written. And so what we're about to see next in Revelation chapter 4 is immediately coming off of these churches hearing how terrible they are, right? It's immediately coming off of that, and they're starting to feel kind of down, depressed, and starting to think through, Jesus, how am I supposed to get through this? How am I supposed to be faithful? Like, you've seen what the emperor is doing. You've seen the persecution that we're experiencing. You've seen these other things that are buying for our love and our attention, our affection. You've seen this sin that is so enticing. Like, how am I not supposed to compromise? And and really, the question that they end up asking is, the question behind that is, how am I supposed to worship you in the midst of this culture? Because every compromise is a worship issue. Every time there's compromise, it's a worship issue, because when you're saying, hey, I'm going to choose to follow this instead of Jesus, or I'm going to choose to obey this instead of Jesus, you're compromising, and what you're actually saying is, I'm going to choose to worship this thing instead of Jesus. I'm going to choose to worship my finances instead of Jesus. I'm going to choose to worship what culture loves instead of Jesus. I'm going to choose to worship my family instead of Jesus. And every time we compromise, we're failing to worship Jesus and choosing to worship something else. And so how are we supposed to worship Jesus in a culture that is violently against him? How are we supposed to worship Jesus when... Things are hard when culture is telling us to worship these other things. And that's really what we're going to look at this morning as we jump into Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And uh, what we get in Revelation 4 and 5 is a start of another vision. John is getting another vision from the Holy Spirit. And this is a vision of heaven and it's not just like heaven someday far off like this is a vision of heaven right here and now it's a reality that is happening that you just can't see with your eyes but it's a reality that is there you can think about it like this anyone seen the show stranger things a couple people are like can i say that in church can i admit that uh yeah it's a show a lot of people are watching it's got 52 billion minutes watched so i'm assuming a couple of you have added to that um But in the show Stranger Things, there is this alternate reality. It's not even really an alternate reality. It's this other reality that is happening at the exact same time. It's called the upside down. And in the upside down, it's this reality that is happening at the same time as what is happening on earth. But people on earth can't see it, but it's affecting their everyday life. And so it's kind of like that, except instead of a demonic reality like in Stranger Things, it's this heavenly perfect reality that we see happening in heaven right now, we just can't see it with our own eyes. But John is given this vision of this this reality that is in heaven, and this is what he lets us in on. And so Revelation chapter 4, you can open there if you're not there. I'm going to be honest with you guys, this is the point where we start to get into some of the weird stuff in Revelation. We haven't gotten to a lot of weird stuff yet. The weird stuff is coming specifically next week, but we start to see some different imagery and some symbols and we're going to do our best to explain it and it might be a little confusing. That's okay. We're not going to spend a ton of time on these things because I don't want you to miss the important stuff for the weird stuff, okay? I don't want you so focused on the weird things that are happening, the different imagery uh, and some of these symbols that you miss the really important stuff that is going on. And so uh, we're going to jump on in because what we see in this reality that John shows us in um, this vision it's going to drastically shape the way that we live. So, Revelation chapter 4, you guys ready? All right, I'm going to assume that was a bigger yes than what it was, and we'll just start. Um, Revelation 4, starting in verse 1, says, After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you mu- what must take place. After this, this is just the introduction to this vision that John is getting. Uh, there's this door open to heaven, this first voice, which is the voice of Jesus that we saw in Revelation 1, calling out to John, saying, hey, come up here, I'm going to show you what is going to happen. And so in verse 2 it says, at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and cornelia." This is the first thing John sees when he enters into this vision of heaven. He goes through the door of heaven, and this is what he sees, this throne. And I I think that this is really important, that the first thing he sees when he's in heaven, it's not this future that's going to happen. It's not the apocalypse. It's not all the weird stuff that we'll get to in a bit. It's not breaking of seals or anything like that. The first thing he sees, what is it? It's a throne, and it's God seated on his throne. Before we get to all these other things that we're going to see play out in Revelation, the very first thing that John sees when he steps into heaven is God on his throne. And he doesn't even attempt to describe God. Like back in Revelation 1, we see John give this cool description of Jesus, this beautiful description. He doesn't even try to describe God. All he says is that he has the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian, which are just these two precious jewels. And so what he's essentially just saying is there's just thrown and on it is God, and I can't even describe God. He's so beautiful and wonderful and set apart. Like, that's who God is, completely set apart, that even in heaven, John's eyes are drawn directly to him first. And like, this is heaven we're talking about. Like, this isn't earth and God just manifesting. Like, this is beautiful, glorious, wonderful heaven, and the first thing that John sees is God seated on the throne. And then we keep going. And we see around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass-like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The living creatures like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. So that's what John sees. He first he sees God sitting on His throne, and then his eyes start to wander, and he starts to see what else is in the throne room, and he starts to see these things like rainbows and other thrones, and he hears thunder. and There's a lot of symbolism, and we're just going to kind of run through it real quick so we can get a base understanding of what's happening. So he sees this rainbow, and this rainbow, uh, oftentimes in scripture, rainbows refer to God's mercy and faithfulness towards His people. So he sees that around the throne, and then. Around the throne, he sees these 24 thrones, and seated on these thrones are 24 elders. And there's some debate about who these elders are, what their purpose is. Uh, What we can kind of assume, though, is that these 24 elders represent the whole of God's people. You got 12 from the 12 tribes of Israel, then you got 12 from the 12 apostles who followed Jesus. That equals 24 for those of you who are slower at math. And they encompass all of God's redeemed people. And so the picture we see is that on these thrones surrounding the throne of God are God's redeemed people ruling and reigning. And there's some, there's some debate whether they're angelic, angelic symbols or angelic beings or if they're actual humans. I tend to lean angelic just because of how they're described and their function later on in Revelation. You can pick whichever one you want. Study it a little bit if you want to. Uh, but that's what we see. And the beautiful thing about this is what we saw in the last couple chapters were these letters. And these letters uh, ended with, to those who conquer, and this last one specifically in chapter 3 ends, "To to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That these 24 elders sitting on the thrones, around the throne of God, that God is true to his promise. Uh, Jesus is true to his promise that those who conquered will rule and reign with him. And so we see these elders ruling and reigning. God's people, all of the redeemed people, ruling and reigning. And then we keep going and we see from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. This can symbolize God's wrath and his power and his judgment. And then we see uh, some seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. How We looked a couple weeks ago, and we saw that this is just the sevenfold spirit of God, the perfect presence of the Holy Spirit. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass-like crystal, Once again, there's some debate on what this glass sea is. Uh, Some people see it as, in the Old Testament, the sea could refer to uh, judgment and evil and chaos. And so, some people will see that and be like, the sea is glass and it's like crystal, which means before God, it's not chaos. Before God, evil is even calmed down in the presence of God. That he isn't surprised by it, he has conquered over it. Another way that you could see it is some people view this glass sea as kind of this opaque barrier between heaven and earth to where God, before his throne, he can see down to his created beings, he can see all of creation, and he is in control of all of it. And so either way, no matter how you view it, the thing that we see from this glass sea is that God is above his creation, he's over his creation, he sees his creation, and he's in control of his creation. And so that's the picture that we get so far. And then we get, like I said, we're going to get into some weird things. Uh, We see these living creatures, these four of them. Uh, I'm going to read the description one more time. It says, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. I think it would be fun if you uh, read this description to your kids, had them draw it and see what kind of nightmares and dreams come from it. Could get some really cool stuff from there, guys. Uh, but we get, some, we get some creatures here, right? Creatures that look kind of like they uh, symbolize uh, some things that are on earth, these animals on earth. And really what we just gather from these creatures is they can symbolize all of God's creation, all of God's created beings, all the animals on planet earth and all the people on planet earth that these creatures can represent all of God's creation, all right? And so that's what we see in the throne room. That's what John sees in this reality that he is brought into is God on his throne and all these things around him. And as you read through that passage, I want to point something out to you. As you read through that passage, there's two words that pop up over and over and over again. Did you guys catch it? It's the throne. It's the throne. And just a quick Bible reading tip. If you see things repeated over and over and over again, it's important, okay? And so we see this repeated over and over and over again. The throne, the throne, the throne. Like, look at it as you read it. It says, in the um, coming, I will show you what must take place. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And around the throne there was a rainbow. Around the throne were 24 elders, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were seven burning torches of fire. And before the throne there was a sea of glass. And around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures. Because John gets this vision of the throne room of God. And all, this, all these different things are going on around the throne. But what's the one thing he is focused on? Throne of God, the one thing that everything is revolving around. It's not the creatures. It's not a rainbow. It's not the lightning and thunder. It's not the twenty-four elders. The thing that all the focus is on. Everything is revolving around the throne of God Almighty. And I don't think that's an accident. That that's how this is written. That that's how John sees what he sees in heaven. It's almost like he is writing to them, saying, "Hey." You want to know why you're compromising? Maybe you're focused on all these other things going on, and you're not focused on the throne, at the center of everything. Your focus is on the wrong thing. You need to get your focus off what is going on in the world, and you need to get your focus on the one who is on the throne. Have you all ever lost focus before? Been doing something, and then your focus is just taken to a different thing? Anyone do that while driving? Anyone want to admit to that? A couple of you. Some of you are brave enough. Uh, I, uh, my wife uh, claims that I am the most distracted driver that she knows. Um, maybe some of your wives say the same thing about you. And she might have a point because I look back at some of the uh, issues that I've had with cars, and a lot of them do revolve around being distracted. Uh, like, for instance, uh, we got back from our honeymoon seven years ago, right? So we just get back from our honeymoon. We'd fly into DFW. Uh, we get to our car at remote parking. And we start driving. And we got, and as we got off the plane, we realized, oh, we are really hungry. And so we have this plan. Let's go get some food. So uh, what do I do? I type in Taco Bell. Obviously, that's the first choice. Uh, and so type in Taco Bell and start getting directions to Taco Bell. The only problem was I am already driving while this is happening, Okay. So I'm driving my car. Uh, It's actually my wife's car, which kind of makes the story worse. Um, I'm driving my wife's car. I'm typing in Taco Bell. I look up, and I realize that I am not making the turn like I should. And so I yank the wheel, and I pop up on the curb, and I completely dent in the side of my wife's car. Like, frame and everything just completely bent in. I blame it on being a Chevy, but it was probably my fault. Um, And... We get to, I get out and I look at it, my wife is not happy, and I tell you, there is no worse way to start married life than ruining your wife's car because you're looking at your phone, right? And it ended up being the most expensive Taco Bell trip that I've ever had, but I lost focus of what I was supposed to be doing. I was supposed to be driving, but I was looking at my phone trying to find the closest place to put food in my belly. And I got distracted, I lost focus on what I should have been focused on. And that's really what I feel like we can see from this, is that these churches that are being written to, and us included, is that maybe we are compromising our faith. Maybe we're choosing to walk in a different direction. Maybe we're worshiping other things because our focus is not on the throne of God, that our focus is on the wrong place. Our focus is on what is happening in the world, it's focused on politics, it's focused on our 401k, it's focused on retirement, our career path, our family and our kids, and we have all these other things, all these little things going on in this world around us, and our focus can be taken so closely to all those things instead of being on the throne of God. And So church, this morning, maybe your call is to get your focus off of the little world you live in and on the throne room of God. Maybe your call this morning is to take even yourself off the little throne that you claim here on earth and see God on his eternal throne in heaven. Get your focus in the right place. Stop being distracted by all these other things going on around you. Focus on the throne of God where he is seated because that's where everything is revolving around here. That's what it all revolves around. And so we see this vision that John is having. We see this throne room of God, that God is on his throne. We see that's what is in the vision. And then as we continue, we see what is happening in this reality, in this reality of eternity. We see what is happening. Let's keep going in verse 8. It says, and all the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So in the throne room of God, we have seen what is there. and Now we see what is happening. That all of these things, they don't just revolve around the throne of God. They worship the God who is on the throne. These four living creatures and these 24 elders representing all of God's redeemed people, their focus is on the throne and their worship is, on, is to the one who is seated on the throne. And we see why they worship him. Like even as you go through their worship, as you go through the songs they sing, we see... Uh, why they worship God, we see that He is holy, holy, holy. That He is perfectly holy, completely set apart from all other beings. We see that He is the Lord God Almighty, the Almighty being sovereign and control, all-powerful and mighty. We see that He has all power and is over all things. Who was and is and is to come, He is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is the eternal God worthy of their worship. They say that He is worthy to receive all glory and honor and power. And they say that He is worthy because He created all things. And He didn't just create them, but by His will, they existed and were created. That He sustains all things. So we see all of these created beings, their focus is on the One on the throne, their worship is to Him because He is sovereign over all things, He is eternal. He has complete power and control, and by his will, he has created and sustains all things. And when they see God for who he is, what do they do? They worship. They fall down before him, and they sing to him. They're so focused on him because when they know who he is, they can't help but be focused on him. They can't help but sing to him. They can't help but bow down to him. I think what we can see and learn from this is that if we want to be a people who don't compromise, if we want to be a people who worship in the midst of this world that we live in, we have to see that reality taking place. We have to see the reality that God is on his throne, he is in control, he is all-powerful, he is the creator and sustainer, and then we bow our life in worship to him. We don't compromise because when we see who God is, we worship him. And that's really what we see happening. And so church, this morning, maybe part of the problem is that we're not rightly worshiping God. That part of the reason we're so tempted to compromise, tempted to not be faithful, is that we're not worshiping God for who He is. And so maybe this morning you need to see God on His throne. You need to go through these attributes of God, His holiness, Him being almighty, eternal, and worthy creator and sustainer, and you need to see who God is and be drawn to worship him for who he is. And when I say worship, I mean like two different things. One, yes, sing to him. Like that's what we do here, right? We gather and we sing. We sing praises to him for who he is and what he has done. And so sing loud because he's a God worthy of it. But it's not just singing. It's not just singing because the God who is on the throne is worthy of more than just your song. He's worthy of your life. And what, what we see these elders do, what we see these living creatures do, is they bow down before him. Another word for worship, the way that can be translated is to prostrate oneself down, to lay down, face down, saying, I am at, "I'm submitting myself completely to you. I'm submitting myself to completely to you. Whatever you want to do, that's what I'm going to do with my life." And so Church, does that define the way that you live? A life of worship? not just in singing, but of laying down your life and saying, God, I want to do whatever you want me to do. This world, they might want me to do some other things. They might want me to compromise. They might want me to worship uh, in these other areas. But God, I'm going to choose to worship you for who you are. I'm laying myself down at your feet. And who better is there to lay our lives down before than God? The almighty, the all-powerful, the eternal, the creator. Your spouse? I mean, if you've been married for more than five minutes, you know that's not true. Yourself? You want to trust yourself with your life? You can't even floss every night, right? Like, And you want to be in control? See God. See Him on His throne for who He is and worship Him. That's how we can live a life without compromise. That's how we can worship here on this earth when we see God sitting on His throne for who He is. That's not all that we see in this vision. That's not all that we see in this reality of heaven that we are ushered into through the eyes of John. We keep going in Revelation chapter 5. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. You'll get more into the scroll next week as we talk about the seven seals and them being broken and some crazy stuff's about to happen. Uh, But what you need to know about the scroll is the scroll is God's plan of redemption. It's God's plan of redemption for all humanity and creation. And so we see that God is holding in his right hand his, this scroll, this plan for redemption, and it is sealed. That it's not yet being able to get played out completely. And so that's what we see in verse 1. Let's keep going. It says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And so John sees God holding out the scroll, his plan for redemption for all humanity. And it's sealed. And to make matters worse, it's not just sealed, but there's no one who is worthy to take this from God, to play out God's plan of redemption on the earth. And John weeps. Like, he loses it. It says that he he weeps loudly. He's distraught over this. And I think we need to sit in that for a moment. And we need to see just how hopeless this situation that John sees is. Because remember, John has been persecuted. He has seen the state of earth. He has seen the state of humanity. He has seen sin envelop everything. He has seen persecution come to followers of Jesus. And he, now he has also seen heaven. Like, he's seen the throne room and the worship of God. And now he's probably just thinking, like, God, how much longer? I've seen reality on earth. I've seen reality in heaven. God, just make all things right again, and God's holding out the scroll that can make all things right, and no one can take it. Can you imagine how hopeless he would feel? I bet you can, because I bet sometimes that's how you feel, that you look around this world, you look at culture, and you just see it going downhill, and you mourn and weep for your kids because you know the world that they're going to have to live in. You experience that to some extent. You've seen all the things happening in culture. You've seen all the things happening of evil in this world. And you're like, how long is this going to last? And you can start to feel hopeless. Start to feel like, is there any redemption coming? Is there any restoration coming? That's where John is right now. Weeping because no one can take the scroll. No one can play out God's plan of redemption for humanity. And then verse 5 comes. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He says, This is the only command we see. It says, Weep no more. John, you don't have to be sad. You don't have to cry anymore. Because even though it looked like no one was worthy, there is one who is worthy. The line of Judah has conquered. He has defeated sin, Satan, and death. And because he has defeated sin, left sin in its place in the grave, he has conquered all things. He can take the scroll. He can open it. He can play out God's plan of redemption. There is one who is worthy. So weep no more. So upon hearing that, we get this idea that John turns around and, and between the throne and the four living creatures... And among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. So he turns around expecting to see this conquering lion, but instead he sees this lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So the elder says, look, there is one who has conquered. Behold him. Look at him. And John turns around expecting to see this lion, and he sees this lamb as though it had been slain. But what is this lamb doing? He's standing. Can dead things stand? No. So this conquering lion has conquered by being a lamb that was slaughtered, has now been risen to life. And he has seven horns showing that he has all power and might. Horns represent might and power. He has seven eyes representing the seven spirits of God. He's full of the Holy Spirit. So we see now this resurrected lamb, this conquering lion, standing in complete power, and has now been given complete authority over all things by taking the scroll from God Almighty. That's the image that John sees. That's the Jesus that John sees. Is that the Jesus that you guys see this morning? Like if I were to tell you, behold, behold Jesus, picture him, what would you picture? Would you picture like white Jesus with blue eyes wearing a bathrobe? Would you picture eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus? Like is that the Jesus that you're picturing or is, or is this the Jesus you're picturing? The lamb who was slain, who is now standing, resurrected in complete power and authority. The conquering lion. Because that's the Jesus that we see here. That's the Jesus that we see. He's on the throne in heaven with all power and all authority. Guys, so often we're so quick to just see the Jesus we want to see. We're so quick to see the meek and mild Jesus. Jesus. Maybe even we're so quick to see the Jesus hanging on the cross for our sins, and that's a good Jesus to see, the Jesus who forgave us. But we're so slow to see the Jesus on the throne with all power and authority over our lives. We don't like to see that Jesus very often because that Jesus demands our worship, and that Jesus demands our entire life. But here's the thing. You can't have Jesus on the cross without having Jesus on the throne. They are the same Jesus. And some of us, we need to get our eyes fixed on the Jesus on the throne. And we need to start worshiping him and bowing our life before him. And so, is this the Jesus that you see? I think an easy test to run yourself through is, do you respond the way that we see them respond as we keep going through this chapter? It says, when he had taken the scroll... Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels. We see the worship expanding beyond just the elders and the creatures. Numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Do you see Jesus the way that John saw Jesus here? Because if you do, you're going to worship the way that they worship. You're going to see him for who he is, and you're going to worship him for who he is. You're going to sing to him. You're going to bow down before him, the lamb who is on the throne with all power and authority, because he is worthy of it. Is Jesus worthy of all praise and honor and authority and power to you? Is that who you see him as? Because that's what we see here, that these people who are compromising left and right, these people who weren't remaining faithful, they are now read this vision of the throne room, of God on his throne. Jesus risen and resurrected power with all authority, saying, you want to know how you can conquer you want to know how you can worship in the midst of everything else that's going on in this world? See God on the throne. See Jesus with authority in the resurrected, in his resurrected body. See him. And as you see him, you will worship him. That's what both of these chapters point us to. That when you clearly see Jesus, it's going to lead to an uncompromising worship of Jesus. Jesus. Because that's what I want you to get from this text this morning. As we see these two chapters, that clearly seeing Jesus leads to the uncompromising worship of Jesus. And so when you're faced in this earth, when you're faced on this earth with, am I going to choose to worship Jesus, or am I going to choose to worship culture? Am I going to be more influenced by the word of God, or am I going to be more influenced by what is going on around me? Am I going to care more about things of eternity and things of God. Or am I going to care more about politics? Care more about what's happening here and now? What is going to get my attention? What's going to get my worship? I hope that you see Jesus. as a resurrected lamb. The conquering lion. Because if you see him, you will worship him. Because that's that's how we can be a conquering people. That's how we can get through this life faithfully. It's by focusing on him, not by working harder, not by pulling up your boots, rolling up your sleeves. Like, that's not how you're going to conquer. That's not how you're going to remain faithful. You're going to remain faithful by looking at Jesus, by seeking him, by seeing him for who he really is. And you're going to worship. And so this week, that's all that I want you guys to do. I want you to fix your eyes on him. Fix your eyes on the one who is on the throne. Like, if you have a really bad week this week, which some of you probably will, fix your eyes on Jesus. Because he's in control of all things, he holds all things. If you have a really good week, which some of you, I hope you have a really good week, fix your eyes on Jesus, because he's better than anything that could happen to you this week. He's better than anything that you could experience in this life. So fix your eyes on him, and as you fix your eyes on him, worship him. Worship him in your song this morning. Worship him when you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school this week, when you're around the dinner table, when you're out with friends. Like Worship Jesus because you have seen him for who he is. And if we do that, if we're people who fix our eyes on him and worship him, we'll be people who conquer with him. Amen. So guys, we're going to enter into a time of communion where I want you, as you get ready to take communion, I want you to picture Jesus. I want you to see Jesus. See him on the cross. Taking your place. Dying for your sins. But don't just stop there. Don't just stop with Jesus on the cross. See Jesus on the throne. The one who is risen to life. The one who has conquered. The one who is in control of all things. So see Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. See Jesus on the throne, conquering all things. And then take communion, remembering him. And then after that, guys, I want you to sing. I want you to worship. Because we have a God who is worthy of it. Like I want, us, I want us to pray. I want us to close our eyes. and Because we do have a God who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And we get this opportunity to join in the song of heaven right now. And so as you prepare your hearts for communion, I just want to read over you the song that is happening in heaven right now as we speak. And the song that we get to enter into with our lives. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain by your blood, and you you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. God, you are worthy of all praise, all honor and glory. And So God, may we give that to you this morning and with all of our life. It's in Jesus' name.